And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. We've been walking through this book uh, to lay not only a foundation, but also to see one of its grand themes, which is how great God is. And if you'll find Genesis, find chapter 24. Find chapter 24. And what we're going to do is read the opening and the conclusion of this chapter. As, as you'll see in front of you when you find it, it is a whole 67 verses, and we will be working our way through most of it. But I thought to open and begin, we'll read just a portion of it. So the opening, you'll see it on the screen, and then some of the conclusion. So let's read Genesis 24 together. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, the one who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning the matter. And then at the end in Genesis 24, verse 62... Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahore Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after the death, after his mother's death. This is the word of God. And so we find ourselves in our study, verse by verse, section by section, through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, and one of the longest narratives in the books that Moses wrote from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and it all centers around one central issue, Isaac needs a wife. That's what all of this attention is toward, and it's bookended by both the death of Sarah, which we saw last week, and the death of Abraham, which we'll consider next week. And in the middle, the big issue that God wants to spend 67 verses on is that Isaac is single, very single, and he needs a wife. 
And we see this passage unfold before us. You'll see this in your notes in five movements. In five movements. And the first of these movements is promise. We see it speak of the promise. Look, look how our passage opens. Look at verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. We see the shadow over Abraham's life as he's nearing the end of his time on earth, and three promises are beginning to converge here at the end of his life. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham out of his land and away from his family, and he promised that though his wife was barren, she would bear a son, and though he was homeless, he would inherit a land, and though he was but one, his family and his legacy would bless the nations. Now he's come to the end of his life, and he is old, and we see that the Lord has blessed him in all things. Abraham has been given a son, Isaac, through Sarah. He has a small field in the land of promise, a burial cave where his wife was buried. And throughout the last 12 chapters, we've seen Abraham interact with pharaohs, with kingdoms at war, with Hittites, with a pagan king named Abimelech. He was being a blessing to the nations. God was keeping every single promise he made to him. And Abraham in his old age is beginning to see this. It's oftentimes you don't get until you can look back that you can really begin to see God's hand all over everything. But now we must ask, if, if God has promised that his offspring is going to own the land and Abraham's coming near the end of his life, Something's going to need to happen with his child. This promise is going to take a third generation, maybe a fourth, and even beyond that to see this promise through. So Isaac needs a wife because Isaac needs offspring. There needs to be someone to see this promise through. And so now we move from the promise to Abraham to him and his servant making a pledge from the movement of promise now to consider the pledge. Look with me at verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country into my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So there's several things I think we notice here. First, it's super interesting that this servant, though he plays a major role in this chapter, remains largely unnamed. We don't even know who he is. We don't get told who he is. It's possible that this servant was Eleazar of Damascus, who we heard about back in chapter 15, who Abraham when he, when he hadn't had a son yet, said, well, take, take, my, take my servant, take this person instead to be my heir. But regardless, we don't know who this servant was, but he's brought before Abraham to make a pledge. And this pledge begins by him placing his hand on Abraham's thigh. Now, this may seem bizarre and sort of uncomfortable to us, and to be honest, it would have probably been the same in that culture as well. 
And it gets even stranger when we recognize that Moses is using a little bit of a euphemism here. He's, he's using a, a manner of speaking. The thigh isn't the issue. Let me say it this way. The thigh isn't the issue, but what's near the thigh that relates to God's promise given to Abraham is the issue. If you're tracking, this becomes even more clear when we learn that a similar phrase is used in Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, when it speaks of the descendants of Jacob. And I actually think the King James gets it right here. Look what this says. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Jacob was in Egypt already. So the word loins is the word thighs here. And I hope we can see and understand. He's got a manner of speaking here. The servant is putting his hand near or on the human means by which the promise of a son came about. And he's making a very solemn pledge. He's making a very solemn pledge. He's saying, I am, I am pledging upon this. And what, is, and what is included in this pledge? Well, first, he's swearing to find a wife for Isaac. He's sort of doing almost like an ancient Near Eastern version of The Bachelor. Go and find my 40-year-old son a wife because he needs one. And I need him to find a wife. I need him to do it. But there's more to it, isn't there? He says not only is he trying to find a wife for his 40-year-old son, there's more to it. He says, find a wife not from the Canaanites among which we live. Don't go down to the near coffee shop or the nearby hangouts. Don't do that. No, no, no. Go to my country and my kindred. Go find someone who, who from Abraham's perspective, believes the promise and knows of the promise that God spoke to Abraham and Isaac. Consider how Abraham is speaking a little bit from his own experience here. Abraham knows what it is to get messed up with the women of the land at the time. Remember that whole incident with Hagar, where Sarah and him thought it was a good idea for their marriage to take on a girlfriend in the midst of the whole thing? That didn't end well for Abraham, and though Ishmael was born, that whole situation created a mess for Abraham. His concern here was to find a woman for Isaac who knew the Lord and who ultimately trusted the promise given to Abraham and the promise given through his line. In order for a promised family line to continue, both parties had to be on board. I think we could see Abraham's thinking here. If you're going to, to give birth to a nation... You need both parties on board. Don't take a wife from the Canaanites, but rather from the kindred of Abraham. And the servant comes back with a great question. It's the question I think I would have been asking if I were the servant. Verse 5, look what he says. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? In other words, he says, what if she's not willing to come back with me? It's a good question. I probably would be thinking the same thing. Shouldn't I bring him along, Abraham, and let him choose what he might want? Abraham continues. Look what he says. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. 
the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And so he introduces a third part of the pledge. You've got to find him a wife. You've got to find him from another kindred. Oh, and you can't take him along with you. <laughs> You got to do this without without bringing him along because throughout Genesis and this even continues in the book of Exodus and beyond going back was never a good thing. Think about this. Abraham finally has land and all that was promised of him. He's got a son and God is blessing the nations through him. It would be a shame for Isaac to go back and everything to reverse course for everything to be turned around and go the other direction. And so the servant makes a pledge, a pledge to find Isaac a wife, a pledge to find her from among Abraham's tribe, and a pledge to do it without taking Isaac along. But God promises to be with him and for an angel to go before him. And I think by way of application, we should take note of the servant's incredible faithfulness here. He shared these burdens for God's plan and his promise for the world. And this servant went to work, and we don't even get his name. He doesn't even get recognition in the book for it. Imagine that. You go to all this work, and God writes a book about it. Your name's not in there. Friends, are we this kind of servant for God? Are we the kind of people who are willing to do big things for God and let God alone get the credit? Are we willing to do God's work, even if it's small and insignificant, or maybe it's huge and and, and world-changing, but to be willing to do it in obscurity? Do we long to be remembered for what we did or for what God did? This servant... We don't get his name, but consider the whole trajectory of the promise of God hinged on what he did here, humanly speaking. And this servant models for us what humble, Christ-centered service looks like. One, it isn't pretty, it won't get you recognized very far, and it will likely come with a heavy burden. And let me say this right now. Success for Crossroads for this church isn't that we become the biggest church in Kentucky or even the biggest church in Katy's, but rather that we are faithful servants who give all the credit to where all the credit is due to God alone. I don't care if the whole city comes in here. If I or any of us are getting the credit for it, I don't want any part of it, and we shouldn't either. Consider that if we want this church to be here a hundred years from now and the work that we do now, we hope and pray will survive even if all of our memories are long gone. What began with a reminder of the promise moved to a pledge and now moved to the third movement, to prayer. To prayer. Look how the servant responds. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city 
of Nahor. So just a note, in these days, rather than having one part of the family help to pay for a huge wedding, the groom's family would provide gifts for the bride's family as a sign of respect and also as a sort of reflection of their ability to provide for her. So in other words, in these days, if these folks decided to get married, they wouldn't simply get a toaster and a huge party. The family would get camels and livestock and all of these other gifts. Sounds like a much sweeter deal than we get, right? And in case you were looking for any biblical newlywed gifts, a camel might be something to consider, right? And look what happens. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to drink water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women, to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So he starts out by going to the place where women would have gathered. In these days and in many parts of the world, every member of the family would have various chores to do. And the women, and, and again, in, in the ancient world and still in many parts of the world, one of their chores would be to go and get water in jugs and carry them back home. In many African countries, they still do that, right? They carry the jar on their head and they head to where they're going. And this servant goes there with camels and begins to pray a very specific prayer. And we're told in verse 35, and I love how it describes his prayer, that he was speaking in his heart. And he prays silently in his spirit, and God hears. And he says, God... I want the woman who I find, if it, when to know that she's the one for Isaac, let her offer me water and offer water to my camels. Now, this may seem very foreign to us, but hospitality in the ancient world was a huge deal. And if a stranger arrived and asked for water, the locals would offer him a drink. That, that's sort of their sign that, hey, these are, these are good folk. These are good God-fearing folk, they've offered me this water. This was a culture steeped in respect and honor and hospitality. So the servant prays to find a woman that was hospitable and others-oriented. And his prayer, he prays not only that she would offer water to him, but that she would also offer water to his camels. And friends, hear me, camels drink a lot. And he's got 10 of them. So he's like, man, she, she's got to be very others-oriented. And so the servant prays. This is what he's looking for. And look what happens. Look what happens here. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So before he even finished praying, Rebekah arrived. And we're given her family background. She was of the tribe of Abraham. And we're even told, verse 16, that the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom, had, whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar 
and came up. So she fits all the requirements. She's available. She's young. She seems great. She's getting water. You know, she's, she's from the line of Abraham. And she just walks in right as he's finishing up this prayer. He's like, yes, I got this. Verse 17, look what happens. Then the servant ran to meet her. I would love to have been there to see this. Ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished drinking, giving him a drink, she said, I will drink water for your, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to drink water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. The man is literally speechless. You ever pray to God and then get shocked when he actually does it? (laughs) He's just like, wow, the prayer is exactly answered. And so he wastes no time. Verse 22, he wastes no time at all here. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for his arm weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? Now, This was, again, cultural practice of the day. To present her with jewelry was to say what his business was. To present her with jewelry, much like today, was to say, I got a guy that that I think would be great for you. I got a guy that's interested in you, and he's interested in marrying you. And staying at their home was not nefarious. He's not asking for something that would have been maybe against the cultural bounds here, but rather he wants an opportunity to speak to the family. We need to make sure all the family is on board with this. So look at verse 24. She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her master's household about these things. And so the prayer was answered exactly as he asked. And friends, what an invitation for us to pray. What an invitation for us to pray. But we also need to consider that the servant didn't just ask according to a whim he had, but he asked according to what God had revealed. He prayed knowing that God had spoken to Abraham about land and offspring and blessing. He prayed, if I can be a little anachronistic, he prayed empowered by the Bible, by God's word. While Abraham maybe didn't have a book like this, he had just as sure a word as we have of God's promises to us. A prayer life like this servant only happens not when we pray for everything we might want or that might catch our whim, but when we pray the promises of God's word. Let me tell you, does anybody here, and you don't have to answer this, but think to yourself, if you have a big decision or maybe something just massive in your life that you don't know what to do, I would invite you to take a deep dive this week, maybe even a few hours 
if needed, into God's word, seeking him and praying this week, and see if God doesn't give you the wisdom you need to know what to do in whatever that circumstance may be. God invites us to pray, and then things happen. What an incredible gift. So it moves from the promise to Abraham, the pledge of the servant, the prayer of the servant. Now consider providence. Consider the providence, the way that God shows up and works it all out. Look down at verse 29. Look down at verse 29. Now, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. The food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I will say. He said, speak on. And though short, this section reveals a couple things to us. First, we meet this Laban guy who's going to come up a little later, and will present himself to be a little bit of a shady character at some future times in the Genesis story. But it's also interesting that Laban, the brother, seems to be doing the majority of the interaction here and not the father. We don't know, we don't hear it all from Bethuel except with a short reference in verse 50. So it's possible that that Rachel's dad here is either sick, disabled, or dead. So Laban is acting in his place on his behalf. And we learn that the family, at least largely, seem to be uh, believing in the promise. They greet them, verse 31, with the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they display hospitality and kindness toward them. All the boxes continue to get checked. And then you'll see, if you look, if you have your Bible open and looking from verse 34 to verse 49, we get a nearly word-for-word retelling of what happened. I'm I'm not going to walk all the way through that. There's only small details, like in verse 47, we learn that the ring that was given to Rebecca was actually a nose ring. That's kind of neat, right? But that's really the only additional detail we get. And I believe this repetition is done to show just how incredible it is that God provided and caused all of this to work out this way. Look at God's hand upon this situation. It's so cool. I need to tell you about it a second time for you to see just how exactly God worked this out. And so the family down in verse 50 reacts in much the same way. They hear the retelling and look what they said. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And then have a huge celebration. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And, all the, ser- and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. 
He and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. And when they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. So they have this huge celebration. They're they're passing around all these gifts. They're having sort of the the wedding reception before the wedding even happens. (laughs) And like any good love story, there's a small hiccup at the end, right? There's never, this isn't the Hallmark movie without the little hiccup at the end, right? And here it is, verse 55. Her brother and mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go. So the family sleeps on it, thinks on it, and then wanted a delay. Maybe it was because Rebecca did a lot of work in the family and they needed to find a replacement. Maybe these were just natural concerns that a family would have about, oh, my wife's or my daughter is going Who knows where with who knows who he is? Let's take some time here. We're not told exactly why, but they wanted a delay that they said could have been 10 days, but really could have been as long as they wanted it to be, right? So the servant wants to get on the road. And here's what he says, verse 56. But he said to them, do not delay since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And so they let Rebecca settle it. There's a di- the family wants to delay. The servant wants to get, off the, get on the road. Verse 57, let us call the young woman and ask her. Good idea, right? Let Rebecca decide what she does. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent her away with a blessing. Verse 59 here. So they sent Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way." So we come through the heart of this passage, and what does it mean for us? Before we consider the closing here, I think Rebecca offers a point of application to us in this story, particularly to those who are single or dating or who may not even, or who may not even recognize those things but may want to be married one day. What is it Isaac was told to look for, or this servant was looking for, for Isaac, and what is it the world tells you to look for. It's important to note that Abraham wasn't looking for a hookup or simply even for a girlfriend. No, the end goal was a wife for him. And that's because I think Abraham knew what something our culture has yet to figure out, that purposeless dating and hookups not only aren't options for the people of God, but will end in heartbreak for all parties involved. He says, hey, I I have an end goal here, not just for you to have fun and mess around and do what you want. No, from the Bible's perspective, regardless of what Facebook may say, there are really only two relationship statuses, single and married. You can be on the way from one to the other, but there's really only two options. But dating and courting, whatever you call it, I don't really have 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 a dog in that fight is meant to be a pathway from one to the other, not a sampling of one while not experiencing the commitment of the other. 
see this here. Notice that for Isaac and for single people here by extension, what God wanted for Isaac wasn't based primarily on physical attractiveness, but on humility. Sure, we're told Rebecca is physically attractive and physicality is important, but far more than any of that is a person's humility, their service, their love for God. When considering a spouse, the two greatest commandments should be your two biggest criteria. Do they love God and do they love others? If they don't have those two criteria, I promise God is not calling you to marry them. End of story. Don't call me and ask me that you might be the exception to the rule. It's the rule. It's there. Rebecca loved God and trusted the promise given to Abraham, and she displayed her love for others through offering water to the servant and also water to his camels. Hear me. Outward beauty is often shallow and fading, and a relationship built around that will go down in flames. If it's hot with passion at the beginning, it may end up burning and falling to the ground. But humility, when we pursue it, and it's something we pursue in a spouse, is a foundation that can be built on. Rebecca has much to say to those who are looking for a spouse in the room today. Mark it down. Think about this. But the scene closes after the promise, the pledge, the prayer, and, the pro- and when we see providence, now with the purpose. What's the purpose of all of this? Why is this here? We get to see the meeting between both of them. Look at verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahoy Roy and was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac, and she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so the scene concludes, and we can begin to see the purpose in all of these things. We can reflect on what we see as a variety of purposes that God was doing here. First, through Rebekah, God provided comfort for Isaac in present suffering. One of the purposes of all of this was to comfort Isaac in his present suffering. Verse 67 is powerful, that Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What an incredible thing that a godly spouse can do to the heart of a suffering saint. I know I've seen that in my own life, and we don't get into the details of how she comforted him or what she did, but we need to recognize that Rebecca was a blessing. I wish we could dive more into the Hebrew, and if you want, I can send you some stuff to read, but her name, Rebecca, is close to the Hebrew word baraka, which means blessing, and even the word that's appeared that, that in verse 60 that says 10,000, 
is close in, in its sound to her name. God promised to bless Abraham and his sons, and here he was doing it through a godly woman. A godly spouse is a blessing. Don't take it for granted. God comforted Isaac in present suffering, but we also see that in this episode, he commends the past faith of Abraham. He commends Abraham's past faith to us. Because Rebekah is presented here much like Abraham. Think about it. She leaves her homeland for the land of promise. She does it based solely on a promise from God. She displays deep trust in the Lord, even though coming from a similar pagan lineage that Abraham did. And as we've been following Genesis, the life of Abraham has been here to shout that this is what a life of faith looks like. That in some cases, like the situation with Hagar, here's what it doesn't look like. And Rebecca echoes the same shout. She was a woman who trusted the Lord more than her present comforts or circumstances. She knew that the most sure thing in the world was that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And better to follow his will when it's unclear than when it's unclear where you're going exactly than to second guess and delay like her mother and Laban attempted to do. This was a huge act of faith reminiscent of when Abraham was called out in chapter 12. Leave your homeland and your family, Rebecca. Go to a land that I will show you and you'll have a home and offspring, and blessing. Rebecca displays just as much, if not more, faith than Abraham, but also than this unnamed servant who gets a lot more attention. Rebecca is here to commend to us a life of faith, a faith like Abraham, trusting God that when he speaks, he keeps his word. And finally, It brings comfort. It shows us the present comfort of Isaac. It commends the past faith. But it also, last, culminates in the life of another promised son. It culminates in the life of another promised son. Consider this. Genesis 24, like any other passage in God's word, is part of a bigger story. This account, for example, foreshadows the exodus in a lot of ways. Did you see this angels leading this bride through a wilderness by a servant to find the land of God's promise and blessing? But even beyond that, neither Rebecca nor Isaac nor their future children would fully see the completion of this promise. Consider verse 60 with me again. And they blessed and said to her, Our sister, may you become ten thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Not only was this the nation of Israel that was going to come through her, but there was going to be a particular promised son that would come through that nation. A son born out of that nation who'd possess the gates of his enemies. And that promised son, too, would have a bride that would need to be sought out and even purchased. But he wouldn't purchase her with camels and jewels. No, he would purchase her with his own blood. And, of course, I'm speaking about Jesus Christ. Because Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that all marriages 
whether Isaac and Rebecca's or yours or mine, ultimately, though imperfectly, reflect the love of Christ for his church. By this, he declares his love for humanity, he declares his sufficiency to save, and he declares his hope to the world. He dies to purchase his bride, and he rises again three days later to offer forgiveness and comfort to all who trust in him. What an incredible chapter before us. It's far more than just an ancient edition of The Bachelor. This is about far more than a single 40-year-old guy. It's about far more than a wife. We find that behind this love story is a far grander one. We find that behind every love story is a truer and greater one, a story of God's love for the world, a story of his promised son, and a reality of hope in a hopeless world. Where do you locate yourself in God's story that God so loved the world that he would give his one and only son so that, who would, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, that by trusting in Jesus, we become a part of his bride, his beloved. We are forgiven and cleansed and brought into relationship with him and purchased to be his own. Where do you find yourself in that story of the world? And when have we last proclaimed that good news to others in our city and town? I would ask us to consider this and consider Just this incredible chapter that's before us. Let's pray and then we'll respond through singing together. Father God, you are good. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for loving us, for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for Isaac and Rebecca and for the way that you ultimately point us toward your love for us through your son Jesus, through the perfect bridegroom and us to be his bride. Lord, may we live as, as, a, as a body, as your bride, as a church that would honor you with our lives, that would speak of you with our words. And Lord, may we be people who give you all the credit. May we be fine being unnamed servants who simply do what you call us to do and who are content with that. I pray if anyone here has never encountered you, that they would trust in your death, burial, and resurrection to save them from their sins, that they would talk to someone here today more about what it means to know you, that you'd be honored and glorified through our singing and the response of our lives that we live. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond with God's word in song. Coming from that place of victory, that he's led us to to sing from. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph My God will never fail 
No, my God will never fail. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. There's power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. I'm not backing down from any giant. I know how this story ends. Yes, I know how this story ends. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. For the bad. 
belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to sing. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory. For the battle belongs to you, Lord. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. You turn it for good. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. You turn it for good. victory is ours. The victory is ours in Jesus Christ. In him we can scale any wall. In him we can do whatever he provides for us to do. He will equip us to do it. Father, the victory comes from you and we anticipate and wait expectantly for you, God, for you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we leave, just a few notes. One, as you exit out here, you'll see a a basket. You can leave your offering, but also invite cards. I'd encourage you to take a ton of them and go invite everybody uh, who you can, who you're open uh, to giving those to. I know that's that's been a great outreach opportunity for me. Uh, If you're staying for the VBS meeting, give us about five to ten minutes to let folks get where they're going, and we'll start that in here. And we'll depart from here with a blessing from God's word, a benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.